Author and journalist John Ronson talks about his new screenplay, Okja, spawning psychopaths and Trump. Plus, David Lynch has a love affair with coffee. All this on Pop Culture Confidential. Hey, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. We have such an interesting couple of guests for you this week. And like many of you, I'm excited that Twin Peaks is back after 25 years. And that means a whole lot of donuts and Agent Cooper's damn good cup of all-American diner coffee. Later, I talk to Helen Holliman. She's the editor-in-chief at Vice's food website, and she's followed David Lynch's obsession with coffee in his life and in his work. But first... Last week, the brilliant South Korean director Bong Joon-ho premiered his new movie Okja at Cannes. It stars, among others, Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal. This beautiful and special little creature will be a revolution in the livestock industry. Our super pigs will not only be big and beautiful, they will also leave a minimal footprint on the environment, consume less feed, and produce less excretions. And most importantly, they need to taste fucking good. The movie was met with standing ovations and critical acclaim, but also became a hot topic at the festival due to the fact that it's a Netflix production. Many voices in the film community were not happy with films from a streaming service featured at the festival. At the first screening of Okja in Cannes, the Netflix logo was met by loud booing in the theater, which was widely reported in the press and on social media in real time. John Ronson is a journalist, author, and the co-screenwriter of Okja. Ronson is no stranger to a little controversy and fuss. As a reporter, he spent much of his career following people on the fringe, conspiracy theorists, and secret organizations. He studied psychopaths for his book, The Psychopath Test, and he looked at the world of modern public shaming, like on Twitter, in his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. He recently authored a book about the influence of the alt-right movement on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, Infowars, Alex Jones, and much more. John Ronson, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Christina, it's my pleasure. So, for the record, we've met a few times, and and here's the thing. You're kind of freaking me out a bit, because since the last time we met, the people you followed and written about during your career, people on the fringe, some of them pretty scary, now they all seem to be in power. And you have been publicly <coughs> shamed by the French, who really seem to hate streaming. So I'm very worried about you, John. <laughs> well, I don't feel personally publicly shamed by, by the French. Um, that I was thinking, um, what you're referring to there is the fact that um, Netflix, uh, the Netflix logo was apparently booed at the 8.30am screening of Okja at the Cannes Film Festival because some people thought that Netflix shouldn't be in competition at Cannes because it's a streaming service instead of a uh, theater service. Yeah, because I just want to say that to the listeners that it's not the movie itself was super critically acclaimed last week after Khan. This was was Netflix, but but go ahead and tell me. 
it was the logo uh, that, that got booed. Exactly. People love, of course, um, you know, the internet being what it is, there was a little bit of confusion about that, like what was booed. Um, but no, the film itself got, we got a standing ovation. And, and um, in, you know what, though, I think is kind of funny about all of this is that the uh, it was the 8.30 in the morning screening where the logo got booed. Um, who goes to the 8.30 in the morning screenings at Cannes? Uh, journalists. Right. So it's like journalists, so like a few journalists booed the Netflix logo, and then a bunch of journalists wrote about how the Netflix logo was booed. It's like they just, it, it felt almost <laughs> like they created the story just to write about it. Um, <laughs> it was planted. Uh, yeah, and by the time, by the time we saw the film that, that evening for the big, Black Tide premiere. Um, there was when the Netflix logo came up. Everybody in the audience cheered. I think as a kind of um, response to what had happened in the morning, and the film got a big standing ovation. And it's you know it's a lovely film, so it's impossible for people to not like the film. So so I did feel like the kind of booing of the logo was a little bit of a was a little bit of um, fake news. Right, right. But then there were some technical issues that, as well, like Tilda Swinton's head was cut off or something in the screening. Yes, in the in the morning, in the 8.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. screening. Um, the opening scene, apparently, there was... I think what happened was, um, from what I heard, I wasn't there. I was in bed asleep while, while all this drama was happening. Um, but what I heard was... Uh, like one of the curtains didn't open. There was some technical oh. malfunction and one of the curtains didn't open. So the people sitting upstairs couldn't see the whole screen. But that only lasted like a few minutes. And, okay. um, so, it only lasted a few minutes. And then they stopped the film and started it again. Yet this became like massive news. It, it made it to like to the news, this incident. It but, did. You know, uh, yeah, all over the world. But a curtain not opening doesn't feel like a huge news story to me, especially because they rewound the film and started it again and everybody got to watch it properly. So it feels to me like, like um, you know, it can, everybody loves a little bit of drama and this was just some, some drama that everybody could get excited about. I was thinking about you the whole time, thinking, oh my God, I hope he's not in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, 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 well, the reason it's it slightly, I mean, frankly, I didn't, personally as the co-screenwriter of the film like I didn't care about any mm-hmm. of this like it, it felt a long way away from um, from from me but the one thing I would say is that I felt faintly annoyed that that you know Bong who who is a master he's a he's a brilliant brilliant filmmaker and he's made an incredible film and films take years to make and this film was a very you know um big undertaking a big ambitious movie that bong took years and years to make and a technical malfunction that lasted four minutes at one screening of this film um you know was was in danger of like becoming a bigger story than the film itself. So, so that kind of annoyed me. Right. Um, Bong Joon is the incredible director of People Will Know Him from Snowpiercer, for example. How did this come to you? How did you get involved as the Cone screenwriter? Uh, a few years ago, I wrote, um, I co-wrote a movie called 
Frank, um, which starred Michael Fassbender. And it was based on a period of my life. Um, when I was a teenager in Manchester, in England, I played in a band and the singer in the band wore a big fake head that he never took off. Um, and his name was Frank Sidebottom. So I was the keyboard player in this band. Um, oh, gosh, about eight or nine years ago, a friend of mine, the screenwriter Peter Strawn, suggested that we wrote a uh, a movie based on, on that time when I was in Frank Sidebottom's band. So we wrote this lovely film called Frank, um, which starred Michael Fassbender and Maggie Gyllenhaal and Donald Gleeson. And it came out and Bong was a big fan of, of Frank. So mm. um, he'd written a, a first draft of Oakja. Um, but, you know, quite a lot of the movie is is set in, in America with English characters. So he wanted an English writer to to work, you know, particularly on those characters and that dialogue. Uh, so yeah, he was a fan of Frank, and and he felt that Frank had a kind of sensibility that you know Oxha could um, could have a little of. I mean, Oxha's Oxha's a sort of wildly mutating film of like many different tones. Right. Without spoiling, could you just tell us the audience a little bit what it's about? It's about a, a it's about a little girl whose best friend is a giant pig the size of an elephant, and the pig gets taken to New York by an evil multinational corporation headed by Tilda Swinton and the girl has to uh, get her pig back. <laughs> sort of an E.T. meets. But I've, I've, I've heard people talk a lot about the sort of environmental parable talks that there's a very serious part of it as well. Yes. Oh, yes. It, it's you know, The thing I love about Bong, I mean, I love many things about Bong, but, but one of them is... is um, he's great at tonal shifts. You know, sometimes this film is is fun, silly kind of popcorn type film, and then it becomes incredibly dark and disturbing. And and I I love that. I love things that can have. To, and I kind of think that's what I do in in my stuff too. Mm. I I um I write. You know, a lot of my books start off funny and end up horrific, which I think is kind of like life, right? It, it starts is. funny. <laughs> <laughs> and terrific, uh, and um, so yes, so so at times Oakja's like this kind of big fun blockbuster chase movie, and then at other times it becomes you know very dark and 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 brutal uh, and beautiful. It looks beautiful. Oh, beautiful! <laughs> it, it was it was shot by Darius Condy, who who's a legendary cinematographer. He shot. He shot you know, David Fincher movies and Woody Allen movies, and he shot Evita. He shot Seven. He shot, I think, he shot Midnight in Paris. So you know, he's a kind of master cinematographer. Mm. And the and the pig was designed by the same man who who designed the the tiger in the Life of Pi. So right. Bong surrounded himself with like amazing people for this. For this movie. And I'm also always interested in sort of the the process of the screenwriter. How did your collaboration work? 
I never sit in the same room as somebody when I'm writing. I, I just can't do it. I'm an introvert, and the idea of being actually in the same room as somebody when I come up with ideas is like it's like horrifying to me. <laughs> also, uh, you know, you have to be like if you're in a room with somebody and you're sort of brainstorming ideas, it's the it's the big alpha male extroverts are the ones who who get listened to because they're the ones who kind of shout the loudest. Right. And I've been in those kind. Yeah, I, and I've been in those situations. Haven't and, we all? You know that, yeah. The loudest talkers don't necessarily have the best, have the best ideas. Um, when I was writing Frank with Peter uh, and the director Lenny, we we went off and had a couple of those sessions. We went off and uh, we went off to a disused railway station in the north of England uh, for a few days to work on Frank. And I tell you, entire Peter and Lenny are both, you know, kind of alpha male people i can tell you entire days went by when i just didn't say a word (laughs) (laughs) but then then you know i'd go home and and sit alone in a room and and write it and and you know that's how i like to work so so with bong i i never once sat in a room with him um and worked but what happened was I, i he him and duho his producer um uh came to New York and I had a meeting with them at a hotel in New York uh, where we just sort of talked around it. Uh, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry that my dogs are barking, by the way. Okay. And then afterwards, um, they sent me Bong's draft of the screenplay, the first draft, which I read and could not believe it was kind of incredible um without giving anything away there's a few times in the movie where it just goes places you can't believe there's a few times in the screenplay where you think in bong's draft of the screenplay where i thought you're not gonna you're not gonna go there Mm -hmm. and then whoa you go there um, so I found I've, I've got incredibly excited reading the screenplay and told them that I would love to work on it if, if they wanted me. Um, so then that's what happened. I wrote, you know, with Bong, we wrote about another five drafts. Um, the story was pretty much all there in Bong's first draft. And then I just, um, m- most of my work was to do with... Um, fleshing out the kind of English-speaking characters and, th- and those scenes and mm-hmm. their dialogue, the Tilda, Jake Gyllenhaal, Paul Dano and the other animal rights activists. I, I, I did a lot of work with, with in those scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was just effortless and wonderful. It was, it was nothing but a great experience. And the fact that it's, it's Netflix was nothing, that, that it apparently concerns the French, but not you in any way. No, not at all. In fact, I—I uh, I mean, I'm a big Netflix fan, like everybody. I, you know, I—I I, um, I watch Stranger Things. I watch, you know, all the Netflix shows, just like everybody else, and and I'm a huge fan. But Netflix weren't on board when I was writing the screenplay. Okay. Um, when I was writing the screenplay, it was it was Bong, and me, and Duho, and Tilda, and Tilda's partner Sandro. That. To my knowledge, that was kind of it mm-hmm. um, during during that time. So, you know, my screenplay would go back and forward between me and Bong. And, um, you know, most of the Korean scenes were his. Most of the American scenes were mine and the story was his. Um, 
And then when, after about five or six drafts, Bong said that the story, you know, Bong felt kind of happy with the with the screenplay, and and that's when he involved Plan B, uh, the which is Brad Pitt's okay. production company, Jeremy Kleiner and um, Didi Gardner, and they took the together they took the script out, and. The thing about Okja is that it's a really ambitious and expensive movie. It's like 50 or $60 million, but it's it's complicated. You know, some of the scenes are in Korean. It goes to some very kind of dark and brutal places. Um, and, you know, but there's these huge chase scenes where, like, things get destroyed and there's lots of people involved. And, and uh, you know, so I... I I can't imagine if, if Netflix or Amazon hadn't made this movie, I can't imagine it would have ever been made because right. it's, it's, I mean, can you imagine a, one of the big studios paying $60 million for a movie where half of it's in Korean and it goes to some incredibly, incredibly dark places, even though it's a, a many, on many occasions it's a really big, fun popcorn movie. Uh, I just don't think it would have happened. Which you really have to hand to Netflix. Oh, totally. They've done the most incredible documentaries, small movies. I mean, they they really have done yeah. something for film. I would say, but oh, mm. yeah, oh, totally. Like all, oh, you know, so many of my favorite things the last few years has been, you know, either Netflix or Amazon. Um, yeah, Stranger Things, Making a Murderer, The Jinx. Uh, War Machine has just come out, which I think is a really great Netflix movie. Um, you know, so uh, you know, it's like an endless list of of the most interesting stuff. I have nothing but gratitude for for Netflix and Amazon, both as a as a kind of writer uh, and also as a as a viewer. Right, right. I'm going to just take a little bit of time to talk a little bit about your books. I was just reading that in your research for um, Psychopath book, you mentioned that you became a sort of drunk on being able to spot a psychopath. Um, can you explain what it was, what you can see? <laughs> it seems like, um, well, okay, so there's a uh, there's a checklist called the PCLR checklist, which is what teaches people how to define psychopaths. And the thing about the checklist is that it's a uh, it's all about spotting the kind of nuances of behavior that are indicative of of a psychopath who's pretending not to be psychopathic. Um, so you you feel like a kind of sleuth. You feel like Miss Marple when you're learning how to use PCLR because it's to do with. Excuse me. So psychopaths are pretending not to be psychopaths is what you're saying. Yeah, psychopaths tend not to go around telling people that they're psychopaths, although it, it does happen. Um, not long ago, I was giving a corporate talk in London. Um, every so often, big corporations ask me to give a talk about how to spot psychopaths. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, sometimes I wonder whether they're doing it because they want more psychopaths on their workforce. Okay. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I think corporate chiefs like to like to find out whether or not they're psychopaths so that's why I get those bookings um, anyway I gave this corporate talk in London and at the end this this guy came up to me sort of quite young you know wearing a suit quite unassuming looking and he stayed until the end till everybody else had gone and he said to me uh, I'm, I'm a psychopath uh, he said, "He said I've always known I'm a psychopath my boss knows that I'm a psychopath I'm not a violent person but I, 
you know, my, my psychopathy really helps me in the business community because I have no fear, I have no empathy. So it's so it's great being a psychopath. And then he just sort of left the room. Um, <laughs> and I, I think he, I think he was telling. I don't think he was screwing with me. I think he was telling me the truth. Uh, so once in a while, psychopaths do advertise the fact that they're psychopaths, but more often than not, they don't, especially if they're you know, in court or in prison and they're worried that they're going to get locked away for the rest of their lives if they score too highly on a psychopath checklist. Um, so then it's all about reading between the lines and spotting the nuances of behaviour and so on. So so someone who is not um, advertising it, what do you see? Is it how they talk to you? Yeah, well, I'll give you one example, which I, which I actually don't put in the psychopath test. I don't put in my book because it happened after the book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I was interviewing a... I was making a show about spies and I was interviewing this guy who worked for the KGB, but he was British. Anyway, I was I was interviewing him and he was a terrible interviewee, like like noticeably bad. Uh, whatever question I asked him, he would just go on about whatever he wanted to go on about. He had no interest in, in answering my question and, and he was like grandiose and grandstanding and... Uh, you know, gave these incredibly long answers. And I remembered, like, Robert Hare, who's the man who invented the checklist, said to me, they can sometimes make really terrible interviewees because an interview is like an empathetic process. Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to empathetically answer your questions. We're trying to connect to each other, me and you, Christina. And, and um, But this guy wasn't doing that. So I so I remembered what Robert Hare said. And then I said to him, um, I, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try it out. So I said to this guy, um, so what were you like at school? Were you like a bully at school? Because one of the items of the checklist is early behaviour problems, which is you know which can manifest itself as being like a terrible school bully, mm-hmm. like a really, really, really bad one. Um, and he said, yes, yes, I was a terrible bully at school. He said, I'd hide behind a tree and I'd put bricks in my bag and I'd jump out and I'd hit like my enemies over the head with my bag, which was full of bricks. Oh my god! And I, he said, "I hurt, and I would hurt them quite badly." And I said, "And how did that make you feel?" And he said, "Good." And I said, "Well, I'm looking back on it now, all of these years later. How does that how does it make you feel?" And he said, "Yeah, it still makes me feel good." So, <laughs> so I said, "So are you the kind of person who doesn't feel empathy?" And he said, "He kind of sighed." And he said, you've got to the nub of what a crank I am, he said. Um, He said, you know, if a dog of mine dies, I get incredibly upset. But all of the people I've hurt, he said, who cares? Wow. Yeah. So so that, that felt like a psychopath spotting victory for me. I sort of, when I'd read the others, I draw a little bit of a connection, I may be wrong, but between the psychopath book and sort of the public, your public shaming book, that there's... A lot of people who are not feeling so great who are on Twitter these days. Um, can you spot a psychopath on Twitter? <laughs> um, no. Here's the problem. Okay. Cause you know what I mean, right? My... The sort of shaming. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, there's another side to my psychopath spotting book, which is that it can kind of, becoming a psychopath spotter can turn you a bit psychopathic <laughs> in this desire to sort of, you know, take a little slither of somebody's behavior and then give them a label based on some you know some fragment of their of their personality 
And I think we do that on Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. We're constantly labeling people as like, um, can I give you an example? Here's something that happened like a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure you saw it because uh, I think everyone saw it. It was the the, the night of the um, horrendous um, attack in Manchester. Manchester yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and while all this horror was unfolding, somebody on Twitter, I know this because ever since I brought out my public shaming book, every time a shaming happens on the internet, I get like a million people tweeting me because mm-hmm. I'm Mr. Shay now. Uh, some guy tweeted something about like a terrible, terrible joke about um, the last time I listened to Ariana Grande, I wanted to die too or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Um, and then refused to backtrack and all these people were tweeting him saying, no, that's disgusting, take that down. And, and in fact, he kind of doubled down on it and dug his heels in and so on. And that night he became, you know, the world's worst asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know what? It's possible that he is the world's worst <laughs> asshole. It's possible that he's just an idiot, just a, you know, just an idiot. And I know nothing. I have no explanation. I know nothing about this man. But what I would say is that usually when somebody behaves that inexplicably, this there's something else going on. Right, that's what there's, I'm getting at. Yeah, there's things that we don't know about that are going on. And on Twitter that night, it's changed a little bit since my book came out and since Monica Lewinsky gave a tech talk about the subject. You know, people are a little bit more kind of holistic now than they used to be. But nonetheless, you know, everybody was just, everybody, and totally understandably, I'm not saying this is baffling, totally understandably, everybody decided that they knew everything about that man based on that series of appalling tweets. But we don't. We don't know everything about that person. Um, And the thing that bugs me about social media shamings is that they're very, they're very black and white. You know, there's, there's no room for curiosity. It's all about constant judgment. Um, But in the case where someone is saying something awful or maybe even sort of uh you know, Nazi sympathies, right? Whatever you want to make to, to the worst. I mean, is is there a limit or should, oh, you know what I mean? Well, I didn't want to hear this guy's joke. Um, I, I thought it was a terrible joke and I would certainly not put it, you know, defend him. But at the same time, I didn't think it was necessary. I didn't think it was productive for hundreds of thousands of people to just get him, you know, a, another, a, a perfectly... Um, reasonable alternative would be to just ignore him mm-hmm. because there was something big and important happening that night. So, you know, so my problem with Twitter shaming is that quite often they're, they're based on fra- on fragments of evidence and there's no room for curiosity. There's just, you know, instant judgment and that creates a polarised world and from a polarised world, you know, we get Donald Trump is president. Right. So I think there's a real I think there's a real connection between all of those right. things. Because that's what I was getting at, sort of speaking of psychopaths, my word. <laughs> I get right. the feeling that um in your Donald Trump but well, the book about the campaign really, the elephant in the room. Um, at the end of that I get the feeling that you really didn't think that Trump would win. 
if I'm correct. Were you surprised that he did? What are your thoughts today? I, I'm a bit annoyed that I believed all of the, um, all the pundits uh, who said, like, statistically, there's no chance that Donald Trump will win. I did too, so. Yeah. I actually, earlier on in the campaign, I thought, even before Trump was, um, was, was given the nomination, I thought he could win. And I, I'm sort of annoyed with myself for not sticking to my guns on that. I just believe the statisticians and the, the pollsters. And, and I'm annoyed with myself for that because, you know, my instinct actually was that Trump could win. It, mainly because I thought Hillary Clinton was, a, was, was really problematic as a candidate because she was so insincere. Or, or whether she was or not, I don't know, but she certainly came over as insincere. Um, so I'm annoyed at myself for that. Do I think he's a psychopath? I, I don't. I, I think he... Here's a question I think you should ask about Donald Trump and psychopathy. Is Donald Trump's problem that he doesn't have enough feelings or is his problem that he has too many feelings? And, and if you suspect the latter is the case, then he's, I don't think he's a psychopath. One of the people that has helped him, or at least been sort of a spokesperson for him, is Alex Jones. And he, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of discovered him. <laughs> um, what, yeah. <laughs> what's the story behind that? And who? maybe you can explain who, who he is a bit. Yeah. Alec, well, Alex is, has become like a household name now in, in the worst possible way. He's um, he's a conspiracy talk show host, so he runs a, a network called InfoWars. Uh, I I sort of did discover him. You know what? He was gonna he was gonna get famous anyway, like um, with or without me. But oh, you can't take it I back now. Him, <laughs> <laughs> I sort of think the story I did with him. Well, okay, so I, I'll tell you what happened. So so in the nineties, I had this idea. I was writing my book, my first book called Them, and the narrative of them was if there really is a secret room from which a shadowy cabal is secretly ruling the world. You know, it has to be somewhere. And if it is somewhere, then maybe I can I could get in. So I, I wanted to go on this kind of crazy adventure to try and sneak into the secret room where the Illuminati were plotting global destruction. <laughs> I thought that would be kind of funny. And, and um, so at one point I heard about the secret club in Northern California called Bohemian Grove, which, according to conspiracy theorists, people like Henry Kissinger go and dress up in robes and have a and have a ceremony where a papier-mâché effigy is burnt in front of a giant owl sculpture. Uh, so I thought I've got to get in and see that. So, I, I, so I, I decided to ask Alex Jones to come with me, and Alex was a you know a, a small-time conspiracy theorist in Austin, Texas back then. So Alex came with me and we snuck into Bohemian Grove and he made a film about it, which massively exaggerated everything that we saw in there. Uh, he said we'd witnessed an actual, we'd, we'd probably witnessed an actual human sacrifice, which we definitely hadn't. I can't even begin to imagine what we're going to discover when I infiltrate tomorrow. What about the rituals? Have you heard anything about the rituals that go on? Oh. There's all kinds of rumors about rituals. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's politicians. And now we're going to infiltrate. Um, I think we should go and see what we can see. Do you worry for Alex, Violet? I do. 
Alex gets so impassioned by what he's doing that sometimes I'm afraid that he might be a little too fearless. While we're inside the Bohemian Grove. So, so Alex's video, it was called Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove, became like a sensation. Uh, and then came 9-11, and that's really what turned Alex into a star with 9-11. I, I kind of think of his Bohemian Grove adventure as being like Revolver and 9-11 as being like his Sergeant Pettis. <laughs> so I think, I think he'd have made it anyway. But he's really done post that some some really horrible things. For I mean, for me, it's the sort of his peddling of the falses regarding the Sandy Hook massacre where so many children died. I mean, some of the things just seem so horrible. Oh, um, yeah. That you were talking before about about you know just ignore them on Twitter or something, but if he's sort of the leading voice of Trump, it's just very scary to me. Yes, yeah. oh, I I agree with you. Um, I uh, he really, t- I mean, you know what? There was always elements of that in Alex, but when I knew him back in the late nineties, he was definitely a more fun person. Than, than he is now, uh, power and money, and I think a proximity to Trump, I think has changed him, and he's become a, you know, the things he says and does have become much more hardline and unpleasant. Do you think he believes the stuff that he peddles? I, I would say, you know, this became a huge question recently because he was going through a custody hearing with his with his ex-wife, Kelly, and this became like a huge part of the custody. And I went, I spent a couple of days watching the custody hearing, and that question became a huge part of it. Does he believe or does he not believe? My my feeling is that he, by and large, believes. He, he, by and large, and and you know what, my view's changed on this. If you you see earlier interviews with me, I'd say... No, I think he he's makes it all up. He's a mm-hmm. showman. But I don't think that anymore. I, I think he believes. Mainly because lots of people who know him really well have said to me, no, he really, really believes. So I think he really does believe. That doesn't stop it once in a while from, you know, sometimes he'll jazz it up, you know, for the show. In in the way that, you know, lots of people jazz it up for the show. But but I think he fundamentally believes it, yes. And and in terms of that, in terms of the media, um, um, sort of seriously, how 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 should we handle someone like that? Do you think? Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm a supporter of the ACLU, so I'm a supporter of of free speech and the First Amendment. I, I don't I don't believe in no platforming. Um, you know, I don't believe in not allowing people to to have a voice. Um, yeah, I believe in the First Amendment. So I don't I don't think somebody like Alex should be should be shut down. Unless, you know, I, I mean uh unless it happens in the courts. So the pizza restaurant in Washington DC that got shot up by an Alex Jones fan because he believed Alex's um proposition that this pizzeria was where you know Hillary Clinton abuses children 
um, you know, if that person decides to take Alex to court and wins in court and InfoWars shuts down as a result of that, then so be it. That's the kind of marketplace. But in, in general, you know, I do not push for, for people to not have voices. But I, but I do think it's really important for, for people who believe in truth and rationality to, 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 to battle bad ideas with good ideas. So that's what I think. You battle ideology with humanism. Right. I believe in, you know, what I try and do in this situation is to tell humane human stories about people. Um, because I believe that humanity is more important than ideology. Yeah, it's happening at the moment. You know, more and more people are basically wanting to declare war on Muslims mm -hmm. because of because of the kind of thing that happened the other day in, in Manchester. So that's a kind of classic example of people believing in ideology more than they believe in people. You know, they, they, their ideology is that it, Muslims are responsible for this stuff. So I think, you know, my job in, in that is to is to be much more humanistic and kind-hearted and treat every human being as an individual. But when funding for journalism is, is being, you know, ripped apart and people are, it just feels like there's a smaller and smaller platform to be able to do this. And, and the alt-right is growing on the stuff mm. we were talking about before, on social media, and, and, and there's just it's hard to to find a way to grapple with something like this especially when when yeah. for example when the president of the united states is using someone something like infowars to right. you know further his ideas this is why i think you know the tech billionaires should take a leaf out of jeff bezos's book because he he's doing the right thing you know he's taking the billions that he made from amazon and putting money into into the old places like the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, I feel that he is an example of of what the future should be. I wish more tech billionaires were funneling money back into the businesses that they damaged. Right, right. Well, that's a, that's I hope will happen. Me, me too. I, you know what? It could. I think Jeff Bezos is, is. I think what he's decided to do, both in terms of this goes back to Oakshire as well, in a way. Uh, both, you know, in terms of like you know Amazon fund, like Netflix, Amazon funds, you know, interesting, idiosyncratic films and TV shows, and Amazon is now putting money into the Washington Post. Um, I think you know, tech people should know the industries that they've destroyed. I mean, music is is getting destroyed. Newspapers are getting destroyed. Uh, so I think the more that these people who have like a massive surplus of money, the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world, can can funnel the money back into the industries that they, you know, that, that their rise harms, the, the better. Right. You seem to me um, to always have been written, uh, writing a little bit ahead of all of the rest of us. You've sort of seen this happening and then you were on the shaming. I mean, everything is, do you look positively at, where we're headed or are you afraid uh, I think you know somebody said to me last summer um, I in a way I hope Trump gets elected because it will it'll show everybody what we've been hurtling towards and you know I take I take some comfort from that thought 
that the election of Trump will be a kind of, you know, corrective for the future. So for me, you know, what we've lost is the centre. Um, you know, the centre didn't hold. And the centre for me is where the truth is. The, the centre is the grey area, you know, between psychopaths and non-psychopaths. And it's the grey area between somebody who deserves shaming and somebody who doesn't deserve shaming. Uh you know the centre. I, I think is is where the, the truth often lies. So, so what I'm I'm hoping is that uh, Trump and this rise of nationalism is going to be a kind of flash in the pan, um, and things will get back to a more rational because that's you know where humans really do lie. What what worries me a little bit though is uh, is how a lot of people seem to be seem to be playing into ISIS's hands. With with their response to these, you know, terrorist attacks. Um, How would you like to see the response? What are they doing wrong? And what? I've just seen so many people saying, so many people, you know, putting Islam, the religion of peace, and in inverted commas. You know, Morrissey just did it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I see people I know and like on a personal level starting to sort of say that they've lost patience with Islam. I, and when I see that happening, I think, wow, they're just playing into they're just playing into the terrorist ads. That's exactly what I just want people to think. They want this to be a kind of battle between civilizations. Let's not give them that battle. So that that worries me. And how should our response be? I, I mean, yeah, Muslims like Jews are, by and large, you know, funny, thoughtful, nebbishy you know, likable people and the people who are committing these acts uh, are, you know, aberrant lunatics. And should be treated as such. Yeah, and it's, it's got nothing to do, it's got, you know, it's got nothing to do with, with, with the religion. Well, this this got very heavy here towards the end, so I'm just going to ask you, what, what are you, and, and that's why they should go see Oakjet, because it'll <laughs> yes, bring exactly. another, yes. <laughs> but know, what are you writing now, John? Uh, I am, I've just finished a series um, for Audible called The Butterfly Effect, um, which is basically about the porn business. Um, I've made a series about the tech takeover of the porn business, and mm. and it's really great. Um, it's called the Butterfly Effect, and it's going to be on Audible in and Amazon in July, and then it's going to be out for the world, for, for everybody else on iTunes in September or October. Uh, and it's taken me like a year to make, and I love it. The Butterfly Effect. So it's from. about the porn industry's rise in sort of the internet age? Or? So I wanted to trace a butterfly effect from the flap of a butterfly's wings out and out, tracing mm -hmm. its consequences out and out. And what I decided for the first season of the butterfly effect is that the flap of the butterfly's wings would be this boy in Brussels called Fabian. And Fabian's idea was to give the world free porn on the internet. <laughs> And so he did. And so the best fly effect is all about the consequences of that idea, like how different lives got changed as a result of Fabian's idea to give the world free porn. Uh, okay. So the whole series is a single butterfly effect. Sounds very interesting. Thank you. But uh, please don't write anything else that will come true about psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> I won't.
Um, and that's it. Now I'm just thinking about what to do, what to do next. Okja and the butterfly effect have been occupying me for about the past year. So now, now I'm just trying to work out what to do next. This has been so interesting, as always, talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Christina, it was lovely talking to you again. Thank you so much to John Ronson. Okja premieres on Netflix in June, and Ronson's books can be found on Amazon, Kindle, or a bookstore near you. And now it's time for a damn good cup of coffee. You say drink coffee? I'll drink coffee. Cup of coffee. Cup of coffee, please. I was wondering if I might trouble you for a cup of strong black coffee. Fellas, don't drink that coffee. There was a fish in the percolator. Wait for the tea. Damn good coffee. And hot. E.J. Cooper loves coffee. We're going to need some more coffee. David Lynch's obsession with the beverage goes far beyond the cup of black coffee at the diner in Twin Peaks. He's even created his own line of coffee, David Lynch Signature Cup. Andy is said to have had a pretty heavy coffee habit at 20 cups per day. I'm very pleased to have with me Helen Holliman, editor-in-chief at Munchies, the Vice Food website. She's a Texan in New York who's been following David Lynch's obsession with coffee through Twin Peaks and interviews. Ms. Holliman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So are you excited for the new season of Twin Peaks? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think everyone, when we all heard the news, because it sounded like rumors for so long, everyone was super excited to have it come back because I think it's, you know, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. So the reason I wanted to talk to you is that you wrote a really interesting article and interview with Lynch a while back about coffee. And I thought that would be just a really interesting topic to take up. And before we get into sort of David Lynch's own obsession with coffee, tell me a little bit about your feelings about how it's depicted in Twin Peaks. What does it mean, coffee? That's such a great question. You know, you think about Special Agent Dale Cooper, and there's two or three sort of um, images that come to mind. There's him talking into his tape recorder. There's him kind of waxing poetic on the cherry pie. But it really is the moments when he says, that is a damn fine cup of coffee. And it's sort of like, what does it mean? (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, especially as a food writer, when you watch those moments, you're sort of like, wow, it's so simplistic, the statement, but it's also so deep. And I think that, you know, as you're watching it, it's like, I really want that cup of diner coffee, which historically, at least in America, isn't always the greatest cup of coffee, but there's something about it, um, the entire experience that can be really great. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know... This is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. There's something so Americana about it. I mean, if if I look at it from my perspective, it's like Twin Peaks, the whole series is sort of a um, knife right into a small, beautiful American town with this coffee, and it's sort of, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. I mean... You know, as American as cherry pie, as they say, although I don't always associate being American with cherry pie. But you know what? I'll take it for this show for (laughs) sure. (laughs) But what about do you associate it with diner coffee? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever, you know, living here in New York City, we used to have a huge diner culture. Um, And unfortunately, over the years, due to real estate and other factors, you know, you see less and less diners across New York. But you go out into the outer boroughs, you go into New Jersey, or if you're driving along, you know, the highway in America, you will go to diners. And I think that that is something that's sort of like, it's the bottomless cup. Um, you know, I think about like Waffle House, which is a huge chain here and, um, they make pretty good coffee and it's, you can just sort of look at the waitress and pick up your porcelain mug and they know what that means. And there's something really wonderful about that. Right. Do you have any favorites from the original series of, in terms of, of coffee that you looked into when you were writing about it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually, uh, one of the first things that really struck me about Twin Peaks was just every single scene composition is really extraordinary. Um, And it's always the moments in the office when you look over and all of the donuts have been stacked on top of each other. It's sort of this subtly bizarre portrait of something um, that you're like, why did they do that? And I think (laughs) it's those moments when he's sort of drinking coffee and like going over to that little area um, that have sort of been burned into my memory. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in a way it's like the tape recorder and the coffee are actually sort of his friends along this like bizarre journey of like uncovering a mystery, you know? Right. And, and so what is Lynch's own relationship to coffee? Did you find? So, you know, David Lynch is such a a fascinating person. Um, you know, one of the biggest things about him that I've sort of over the years learned that I think is really interesting is he's very into transcendental meditation. Um, and he kind of openly talks a lot about how some of his greatest ideas actually come out of transcendental meditation. And along the way, I discovered that he was drinking a lot of coffee and not just like two or three cups, but like 20 cups a day. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) Was he sleeping at all or meditating? Yeah. Yeah, It's like great question, but you know, ultimately, um, he eventually actually launched his own line of coffee. Um, and it's, you know, the David Lynch signature cup line. Um, so I also noticed just throughout some of his other films, like Mulholland drive, um, there's this really amazing scene where, um, this guy orders an espresso and he takes a sip of it and he just sort of spits it out onto, you know, a, a napkin. And it's just this bizarre and, um, hilarious moment in the film. And so I figured, you know, if there's anyone to be able to talk to about coffee and the culture existing around drinking coffee, it's going to be David Lynch because you know that he's not going to answer it um, directly, he's going to answer it in a philosophical way. That's pretty interesting. And, and what is, what, what, what is his philosophy? You know, for him over the years, he kind of talks a lot about how coffee is a part of the art life and it really helps him through his creative process. He actually, in his office has two different espresso machines And admittedly, he, I guess, has scaled back on the amount of coffee that he's been drinking, I think, over the years. I'm sure (laughs) his doctor was like, cool it. Yeah. (laughs) But I think he went down from 20 cups to like 10 uh, cappuccinos a day. For him, it's like a cup of coffee is a good friend. It's familiar. It's something that, 
he really thinks is sort of part of the writing process as well, which I think is true for a lot of writers. You know, you think about Balzac, Balzac drank over 20 cups a day. And a lot of people say that that's ultimately what killed him. But, um, you know, I think for me, I, I definitely resonate with that. It's, uh, maybe not 20 cups a day, but I, I love coffee. And I think, um, I don't know. It's part of like when you wake up in the morning, it's that thing that you look forward to. It's uh, I don't smoke, but I would imagine that having a cigarette for many people is probably the same feeling, you know. So for him and it's sort of that's what it is. It's sort of like a calming part of his whole life writing process and meditation process and everything. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, and it's the repetition of it, too. I think there's probably something in that that's also very comforting, you know, Um, and he sort of I think he was when I was speaking to him, he he mentioned this book. It's called The Art Spirit by Robert Henri and sort of how the art spirit that transformed itself into sort of the artist way for David Lynch. Um, and I think that, you know, he sort of said like coffee is part of that transformation. Um, and it just, in his words, he's like, it makes you feel really good and it serves the creative process and it goes hand in hand, um, with painting for him because he's a really big painter. Mm. And do you get the feeling that coffee is, is a bigger deal for him than like, say fine wines, which so many other art people are into. I mean, is that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I can't speak to that because I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I do know he's really into cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, um, the real life, uh, special agent Dale Cooper, um, Kyle McLaughlin is actually very into wine. Mm -hmm. Um, and he has his own wine line. Um, and so it's kind of interesting how, you know, that's sort of, in real life, these two different sort of people from this show have very strong food connections. Right. Does the sort of symbolism of so much coffee in his series and films mean the same thing as it does for him personally, sort of a part of life? Or or does he mention anything else of why coffee is in, like what we were talking about, sort of a symbol of America or something um, in Twin Peaks, for example? Yeah, you know, I he didn't really speak to that. um, But I think that you know, maybe it is a symbolic moment of America. I'm not really sure. It's interesting because you think about, you know, the history of diners in America and um, they used to be these kind of tiny little dining cars um, kind of at the turn of the uh, 20th century. And it became this sort of meeting ground for people of different economic backgrounds. And, um, by the, you know, right after the great depression, um, it was especially important. Um, and after world war two, you had a lot of veterans coming home who needed a hot meal place to hang out. A lot of people didn't have place to work. And so it became this sort of refuge for America and also where, a lot of uh, different, you know, immigrant groups would come and and kind of open up their diners and mm-hmm. create these sort of signature American specials. And I think that um, when you think about that and sort of where we are today, you know, almost a hundred years later, it's like we still have those across this country. And I think that that's what's really nice about, um, you know, Twin Peaks is is those moments in the diners. What is the coffee culture today? I mean, there's a different type of diner with the 
lattes we can order in, in any which way in any direction. <laughs> what would you say that the culture is as opposed to what you were just explaining? I think that uh, Americans are are very into trends. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, we have Starbucks, we are kind of uh, the drive through culture. I mean, you go anywhere, even in middle America, and you're going to see a Starbucks drive through off the highway. And people, you know, it's funny, the other day, I went to some sort of hipster Williamsburg coffee place, and this guy walks in, and he's like, can I have a grande latte? And they were like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, a grande latte. And they're like, that's a Starbucks term. <laughs> and he was like, okay, well, can I have a medium? And they're like, yeah, totally. <laughs> but I think that people, you know, are becoming fixated more and more. Um, you know, you definitely have your sort of um, inner, I hate to use the term foodie, but sort of hardcore coffee culture, people who know exactly where the beans were sourced from. They subscribe to like some sort of um, coffee subscription. Um, and then you also have people who just are like, yeah, I like to go to Starbucks or I like to, you know, go to some chain and get a cold brew because that's super trendy now. Um, but I think on the whole, the positive of it is that at least we have some more options um, across the country because I I always forget until I go anywhere else in the world how gigantic America is. Right. So it's nice to know that crappy cups of coffee are less and less. Okay. <laughs> um, but lastly, you were mentioning that he had that Lynch himself has his own coffee line, which means that he's not drinking 20 cups of diner coffee a day. He's actually drinking espresso and stuff. Is his coffee any good? Yeah, it's great. Um, I've had it before. It's super delicious. Um, you know, and I think when he, uh, I sort of asked him like, you know, if he was going to give it to special agent Dale Cooper, you know, what do you think he would order? And he was like, well, I think he'd get the house roast, mm -hmm. um, because he would enjoy the flavor and he would like to have sort of a more roasty, um, straightforward palate. And he would probably order several cups. What What is the sort of recipe or what is the sort of thing with his own coffee? Um, I, you know, I think it's just like, don't mess it up. Um, you know, <laughs> put it, put it into your coffee maker, you know, grind the beans and, uh, and then enjoy. And even if it is a bad cup, it's okay. Hi, David. Hi there. How you doing? Mm, doing good. What's that you're drinking? Just taking a coffee. Yeah. What, what kind of coffee are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, David Lynch Signature Cup coffee, espresso. Huh? Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. Well, we're not going to spoil anything for the new season coming, but are you expecting a lot of coffee? God, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I really hope we don't see any latte art. That's the one thing that I will say. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is apparently some scenes in New York, so that which which are a little bit jarring just to think about that. But I mean, there may be some latte art. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Hollyman, thank you so much for taking your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much to Helen Holliman at Munchies. 
The new season of Twin Peaks is out on Showtime and on HBO Nordic in Sweden. And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and take a minute to rate us as well. And you can find us on Twitter at PodPopCulture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Borg, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks for listening. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Precious.